Hey, what's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Annabelle Frazier about her research on defendant decision-making. This is episode 58 of On Tenure Tracks. So I'm going to start with the first one and we'll see where it goes. Okay. Uh, because I always have a hard time choosing just one. <laughs> uh, so back in the days when I did my dissertation, mm-hmm. I, uh, I started this project and you might actually really like it because uh, it requires some creative writing. Okay. Uh, so, uh, I wanted to create an experimental method uh, to uh, study defendant decision making, which is one of the things that interests me most in the world. Uh, so, I'm always curious to understand why people, when they're faced with the legal system, make the decisions that they make, sometimes to their own detriment. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, the, the methods that we have to study that mm-hmm. are not great. Yeah. Right? So we have these uh, cheating paradigm studies uh, where you put students in a lab and you, uh, and you sort of trick them into cheating, and that's not exactly what happens in the real legal system. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got vignettes. Yeah. Uh, which are great for some things, but... Uh, my primary population are uh, folks who get accused of violent crimes and sex crimes. Mm-hmm. And so you try to put a vignette together and ask somebody to imagine that they have committed a sex crime, and it doesn't work. Yeah. It can't work. Mm-hmm. Like, none of us would ever believe that about ourselves. And if we did, we would fall into the same biases that. Uh, that everybody falls into, right? Well, if I did that, I must be a horrible human being and I deserve to be chemically castrated. So you can't study this type of decision-making with any of these existing tools. So what I started doing and did for my dissertation and I'm now developing further Mm -hmm. is uh, a study that uses a choose-your-own-adventure story. Huh. That's interesting. So I wrote a choose-your-own-adventure story that uh, that made people, uh, young males in that case, uh, go through a story where they are a fraternity member at a frat party, and they get approached by a really obviously drunk person mm-hmm. uh, who comes on to them and they get to make the decision of whether they're going to respond to that and the story branches out from there Mm -hmm. throughout the entire legal case okay oh wow that's really interesting 
So you, I thought you might find that cool. <laughs> yeah, like my mind is a little bit blown right now. Like the possibilities, right? Yeah. <laughs> of so, all of the different. So how many? How many possible outcomes are there in the story? Like how how big is the tree branch out? So it branches out like crazy. I tried to map it out because uh, the paper that that I'm sort of uh, trying to put together for this has been an absolute nightmare to write <laughs> because you can't visualize this. Yeah. Uh, so creating a visual made for like 160 different branches. Oh my gosh. Uh, so it was it was wow. a total madness because you had uh, you had people deciding right am I going to pursue this really drunk person or not yeah and take them up to my room or not uh huh and then you had people who were randomly falsely accused of one crime uh-huh. uh, a statutory rape or randomly falsely accused of uh, an actual rape based on intoxication. Yeah. And people who had agreed who were accused of the same things, but uh, but that was based on their agreement. Mm-hmm. And from that point on, you start branching out because you had, uh, so they went into interrogation. There was a segment on the interrogation and they could lie to police mm-hmm. and they could make a confession or a false confession. Yeah. Uh, and they could, uh, they could ask for a lawyer. They could choose to cooperate so they had all these decisions mm-hmm. and even so from that point uh, they had uh, they had multiple random options for plea deals and they had uh, random choices to uh, get attorney advice uh, listen to that advice ignore that advice Wow. go to a jury yeah yeah, so so it becomes this insane amount of distinct paths. Yeah. And those are just the experimental decisions, right? So yeah. the deal about choose your own adventure is that in order to get people engaged in it, mm-hmm. you have to let them make a bunch of decisions that don't matter. Yeah, yep. Because yep. the more decisions they make, the more invested and involved they feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to get it away from that vignette style, you have to make it feel really real, yeah. and you have to make them continuously make decisions and give them branches out of those decisions. <laughs> so, like, did you did you skip class today? <laughs> did you <laughs> did you go to the gym or not? I went to the gym. Did you do cardio or not? <laughs> right. Uh, well, they had like. Okay, the party's about to start. Are you going to wear these pants yep. that smell like pizza? Yep. Yep. What shoes are you going to wear tonight? Right. Uh, are you going to have the beer or the toxic punch? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's so cool, though. Like this is such a this is a great idea. Like I, it was, I, it was lots of fun. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing about it was how upset it made the participants. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, just just to put it out there, we're not typically in the business of making making people upset. At least not in this way, right? Teaching brings its own bubble bursting that makes people 
upset and uncomfortable, but at least, I mean, I don't do a lot of, I don't do any experimental work, but I'm pretty sure, like, making people upset isn't really the end game. Well, it, it, it sort of is, though, because if you think about, uh, if you think about vignettes, right, mm-hmm. the thing that's missing is any kind of emotional impact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't get upset reading a vignette. You're sort of making a decision based on your own rational calculations or the biases that come to mind. Yeah. Where the fact that they're upset tells me that they're invested. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and there's, so, like, some some reflected appraisals going on there, too. Right? Absolutely. So we asked them if there were any points in the in the story uh-huh. where they felt angry or upset, and the resounding answer to that was yes. Really? So what parts of the story made them upset, typically? Um, a lot of it was the accusation. Mm-hmm. So we were absolutely shocked uh, when when I first ran the data from this. Because nobody believed that a good portion of, of the participants uh, would actually agree to take this drunk person upstairs to their room mm-hmm. in that way. But they would go for it. Yeah. And a slightly over 50% of them did. Oh, wow. Yeah. Were all the participants... Then, were, so what was the what was the gender divide among the participants? So they were all men. They were all men. They okay. They were all young college age men. Okay. Because uh, my thinking was they needed to be they needed the story to be relatable. Yeah. Yep. So we didn't want like a middle aged woman <laughs> yeah. trying to place themselves in a fraternity party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they were all, they were all U.S. men. Mm-hmm. Uh, from all over the states, they were M Turkers. Uh huh. So, uh, they were all somewhere between eighteen and twenty-six. Okay. So right, r- right around that demographic. Yeah, yeah. Where they could actually end up in a fraternity. Yeah. So is that? So how? How did they respond to the the parts of the story that were? Their interaction with the with the legal system. Well, so they they found most upsetting the fact that they were accused of a crime. Uh huh. They did not perceive taking advantage of a wrong person to be rape. Yeah. Yeah. And that's despite all the education that we do on this. Yeah. They didn't think that was a fair accusation to make, uh-huh. and so they were mad, and they were mad when they uh, they were mad when they branched in a way that made them convicted. Uh-huh. When they got convicted by a jury, they were mad. Yeah. Uh, when they were warned at certain points that they might have to register as a sex offender, yeah, they were really mad. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So. Those things made them mad. The fact that uh, those of them who cooperated, who chose, like, during police interviews to cooperate with the authorities, they were mad that they uh, that they were still accused afterwards. 
That's so... So naive. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. I'm... I mean, I'm not surprised. And I shouldn't, like, we shouldn't be surprised that 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 anger about the accusation persists through the entire imagined trial. I mean, I thought, I, I was hoping, and I guess my own naivete, I was hoping that you were going to say that they were angry at um, like how they were treated by the police in the scenario, but no, it's that they they felt this injustice about they're, they're being accused of something they don't think they did, and that persists right. through it. I well, wonder and, why. And the, the thing is, right, so uh, in the story, they weren't particularly badly treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, you didn't see any illegal interrogation techniques or any abuse. What, mm-hmm. you, what you saw is typical typical pressure yeah. So that the the interrogators would, you know, lob these accusations at them. Right. Uh, and tell them that they had evidence that they didn't have. Uh huh. That that's sort of typical. Yeah. So it's not like they experienced anything that was right particularly egregious. There. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't get a good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Nobody came and no. bounced their head off the off the steel table in the interrogation room. <laughs> right. And the, the penalties that they faced in that story were pretty realistic. The you know, they had they had a pretty pretty realistic story overall and not one that is extreme in any way. Right. So I think the fact that they found the accusation itself to be infuriating, uh, particularly for for those of them who did actually choose the thing. Yeah. I think that that is maybe the most interesting part of this. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder why... I wonder why. Like, I wonder why... They remain angry through the entire thing, and there there was never a point of like realization that they had made a bad decision. Like, I, oh, I no, wonder. I think, I think they realized that they made a bad decision when we asked them at the end whether they would make the same decisions again. Yeah, those who had said yes to the drunk person uh, were less likely to say they would do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. So I think they realized that they made a bad decision, but uh, that didn't stop them feeling angry. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's weird trying to, like, reconcile those two emotions of, like, I regret making this decision. And I almost wonder if it's regret from, like, a gameplay standpoint, too, of, like, I went down this... I went down this story arc, (laughs) and I'm really angry at it. (laughs) I... I want to go down the story arc where I win the lottery. Like, where is that one at? Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But then also, so, like, regretting it on that sense, but still being angry about it. Like, reconciling that anger and regret is it's such, like, it's just such an interesting kind of puzzle, I guess. Especially with I this think, population. Well, I think working... So, I... Before I started my PhD, before I started in research, I had worked as a forensic clinician for mm-hmm. a while. Uh, and I've worked with 
folks who've been accused of similar things mm-hmm. and who've been convicted and spent time in prison and all of that. And I actually think that that phenomenon is real. Oh yeah. We we expect people who've been convicted of a horrible crime to to recognize their the error of their ways and, and show remorse and all of that stuff where actually they don't and it's not because they're you know somehow flawed in their personality or their morality it's, it's because they don't think what they did was that bad mm-hmm. and they have rationales for why they did it yeah they have they have reasons so I'm sure a lot of our participants uh, said well she came on to me yeah how is that not consent <laughs> did they have an opportunity to talk about their rationales afterwards in the debriefing not in this one which is why right now one of the things that I'm working on is developing this into a situation where I could get some rationale some yeah. some narratives yeah yeah it's one of the one of the evolving elements of this yeah getting more insight into how they're thinking about this yeah yeah that would be interesting because I, w- I would like to differentiate between the the people who did it in good faith and did it in bad faith you know because there's that oh, there's a game that's become very popular and I can't remember what it is but it's about it's supposed to rep- replicate like poverty right and so it's a very similar thing where like you pick your career and where you're going to live and how close to your job are you going to live and so like they the player gets to pick those variables going into it and then you go through the month and the game throws like random random things at you right like uh, you get a flat tire or you know your job cuts your hours and stuff like that just to try to simulate poverty and like I've done that in my intro social classes before but sometimes students will come at it with like a bad faith approach and will intentionally pick like the worst things <laughs> you know what I mean and so I, I wonder because these are young men mm-hmm. I wonder how much of that happened in this and I would like to compare those guys to the ones who did it more in good faith. Yeah, I don't, uh, that I can't yeah. quite say. Uh, we obviously can't tell. Yeah, of course, of yeah. Story, but uh, but that's where the debriefing would become would be really interesting, right? That would be interesting. I think uh, there are some developments that can be made with that kind of approach mm-hmm. uh, that could really sort of show us where they were coming from. Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting from like the educational perspective too, right? Because you said that about 50% of them would have been convicted in spite of all the education that they have received in, in high school and in college. So I wonder, what does that say about how, our, how we're educating about sexual violence. <laughs> well, so a big part of the the project and some of the stuff that I'm working on is actually all about how we educate about sexual violence, right? Mm-hmm. And all this uh, consent education, and so I've done I've done quite a bit of work, for example, on rape myth acceptance. Yeah, uh, and how that relates 
to actual sexual offending behavior. And I think what happens is that we're not really focusing on teaching the right things. How so? Uh, well, so you can you can teach people to cognitively recognize that a particular statement about sex is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, what she was wearing indicated to me that she wanted it. Right. If you ask the average college student, they will flat out deny that that is something they believe in. Mm-hmm. The question is, right, so there's a great study out there um, about uh, hot state decision making. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. They, uh, The authors essentially showed some kids porn. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, asked them to make decisions about uh, how forcefully to pursue someone. Okay. And what they found was that when people are in an aroused state, all of those rational thinking processes that we work so hard on go out the window. Mm-hmm. The prefrontal cortex goes away. <laughs> so what's so, what's? And so I think that what we're doing when we're doing these like. Uh, these consent workshops and we're talking to rational students in a rational classroom where social rules apply is actually not what we should be doing. We should be trying to figure out how to teach them what to do when they're in that disinhibited state, mm-hmm. when they're really aroused, when they're really drunk. Hmm. When they have less control. Yeah, yeah. I wonder what that would look like. <laughs> you know? That's the challenge, isn't it? Uh, how to ethically do that. <laughs> well, one of, the, uh, one of the ways, the reason we came up with this, the reason uh, that Choose Your Own Adventure thing came up mm-hmm. uh, is... Because uh, there's been so much use of it as an education tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, uh, in nursing, it's used. Uh, they use choose your own adventure style interventions to teach nursing students how to behave with patients. Hmm. I had no uh, idea. They use. There are some interventions that we read about uh, where uh, they use them to teach uh, STI prevention. Yeah. So you could use that kind of approach to rehearse decision making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there have been some interesting developments uh, in virtual reality that could help mm-hmm. reverse behavior. Of course, that's a lot more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Huh. But we're doing it. We're yeah. doing virtual reality with soldiers who are coming back with PTSD. So why can't we do that with students who are much better equipped to handle virtual reality? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. No, my, I'm trying to keep myself from, like, my, my 
reflexively, I want to start brainstorming choose your own adventure <laughs> scenarios <laughs> right now. <laughs> like, this could be a great way to teach about like police violence and mm-hmm. like all kinds of of justice system stuff. It's a great way to teach about. I mean, a lot of my a lot of my research interests lately have been on like the sociology of revolutions, and so I'm thinking like this is a great way to talk about political violence and alienation. Absolutely. That's really cool. Not to mention it's so much fun to write. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's got it, it had to have been a blast. Like I'm it, thinking it about the choose your own adventure books from when I was young and like yeah. my temptation would be would be to put in like a random scenario where they like in those books, right, where they just take a wrong turn and fall into a well. <laughs> and, and, I, think, I think you could do that. And, and then, then it ends. So much fun. <laughs> Just like random stuff like that, to put it in there just just to for the hell of it, I guess. I don't know, but that would that's like that's so cool. That's such an interesting idea. I had no idea that nursing students went through that kind of of training. Well, yeah, because a lot of times uh, the the real challenge with nursing is you never want to put nurses in front of patients before they know what to do. Yeah. But how are they going to know what to do if you don't put them in front of patients? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's only so much with the dummy, right? (laughs) Right, and the dummy doesn't respond. Here you get a chance to get a response, and sometimes a really ugly response. Yeah. Huh. That's so interesting. Um, So... Do you have any any plans to try to branch out on this specific instrument that you're using in terms of like testing different populations or making tweaks to the specific scenario that you did or um, anything like that? Like, are, where do you see this developing? So one of the things that uh, I'm working on right now, in addition to getting getting more qualitative feedback from participants and and sort of recreating it in a way that allows for more uh, narrative quality feedback. Uh, I'm also hoping to develop a second version mm-hmm. uh, based on the irresistible impulse defense. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, so uh, I want to create a scenario where uh, they are just repeatedly annoyed by something, mm-hmm. by a particular thing that they just can't get out of. Mm-hmm. And measure how many times they're going to select the nonviolent option before yeah. they, they flip out and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That would be cool too because you could you could set up like with all of the the non important decisions before you could you could really set the mood that they're in mm-hmm. once they get into that whatever that annoying situation is. Right? My, my thought has been like a, a typical simple assault, mm-hmm. right? So I had, a, I had a case with a client a while back uh, where uh, she was trying to, she was living in a rooming house and she was trying to, uh, to leave the house. And another resident in the rooming house uh, was intoxicated and, and decided they wanted her attention. Mm-hmm. And so they would not leave her alone and no matter what she said or did, they just kept yeah. pursuing her 
and eventually she pushed them and she got a criminal charge for assault. That's absurd, but okay. But that's, but that's what happens, right? Yeah. So, using that kind of scenario, imagine that you're walking down the street and some, some you know, homeless drunk person uh, is trying to get change out of you, but you don't have change. Mm-hmm. And they just keep chasing you down the street and, and pulling at your shirt and, and yelling and, and starting a ruckus. And, mm-hmm. How much, yeah. how much frustration and polite efforts at getting away? Yeah, are you going to make before eventually you say, "All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shove them away." Yeah, this is too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's like there's just tons of stuff that you could do here, like educating the public about like police interactions and like basic aspects of the law and mm-hmm. stuff like that that's that's so interesting um huh so you're so you want to focus on simple assault is there a population you want to focus on with this with this version of it um not necessarily i haven't i haven't fully figured out yet if if there is a better or worse population generally for for my studies mm-hmm. i i tend to use male samples yeah. because because the, the types of crimes that I'm interested in mm-hmm. just tend to occur more among men. Yeah. Uh, but I wonder, for example, in that in that client story that was that was a female. I wonder yeah. if in this case including a broader sample might be kind of cool actually and seeing whether there are differences in the way yeah, yeah. Like, I think this would be really cool to do, uh, like a gender differences in fear of crime kind of project. Um, making, trying to make the scenario as neutral as possible, and then, so like, there's some type of victimization at the beginning or early on, and then, how do they? How would they cope with that? And you know, are, do they seek out therapy? Do they would they start self medicating? Uh, how do they respond to symptoms of PTSD and, and depression and stuff like that? I think would be really fascinating. What happens? Yeah, to, you could absolutely go down that route. Yeah. How do they respond to falling in the well? <laughs> Um, that's so, that's so neat. I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving me this to chew on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I figured, I know you like writing uh, fiction and talk about writing fiction. Those things are essentially writing five different stories or 10 different stories in one. Oh yeah. I'm, I, uh, I kind of want to do this. (laughs) I, I kind of want to to think of ways to to do this because it it's such an interesting qualitative approach that I think you could do so much with and like bringing in stakeholders to like vet the legitimacy of different stories mm-hmm. um, 
I mean, depending on what you're writing about, and then subjecting undergraduates to it, and then having a debriefing session. And I can, I can see the debriefing now in my mind, and students being like, "What the hell, Doctor Wilzak? <laughs> what the hell? What was that? Like, well, what'd you do? <laughs> you tell me." <laughs> Like, it just seems like it would be a lot of fun. Oh, it absolutely is. And I think that it's uh, it's on the one hand realistic enough if it's well done. Mm-hmm. It's, it's on the one hand it's realistic enough and, and sort of immersive enough uh, to feel almost real. But on the other hand, it's not real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might be annoyed at it in the same way you might be annoyed at making the wrong choice in a game and ending up in, in the well. Right, yeah. And you don't have a, there's no save point that you can go back to. <laughs> right. <laughs> Stop that. Huh. Okay. Well, I don't want to keep dwelling on this, and this is not about my trying to, <laughs> to <laughs> brainstorm <laughs> ideas of my own. This is about you. So you said that you had other projects that you were working on that you were excited about. Yeah, so my the other part of my life, when I don't do experimental stuff like this, I work on real administrative data. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of funny because I've been working on data about looking at Massachusetts jail in Superior Courts uh, for the longest time. I've, I've been looking at this data and analyzing it and writing about it since like 2017, mm-hmm. uh, which is before our criminal justice reform, and collecting it since 2015. Okay. Uh, but just the other, just the other week, there was a major story in the news mm-hmm. uh, where the Suffolk County District Attorney uh, was uh, essentially talking smack about the bail fund. Uh, for releasing, uh, for paying somebody $15,000 bail. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the person left, and then he was subsequently uh, arrested for an an additional sex crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so essentially the Suffolk County DA had said, uh, oh, he should never, his bail should have never been paid by the bail fund. Mm -hmm. Uh, He should have been in jail. Uh, and the reason we pushed for high bail is so that he couldn't get out. Uh, now, in Massachusetts, the law says you cannot hold someone on high bail yeah. uh, if they're dangerous. Yeah. Dangerousness should be separately considered in a dangerousness hearing. Yeah. Uh, and the district attorney was was saying, oh, we, well, we avoid these because they're so resource intensive. We avoid these dangerousness hearings. We just ask for high ban. Uh, I've been following this data now for four years through reform through a Supreme State Court case that said you can't do this. Uh, and my team had just finished collecting a 2019-2020 data set on the use of bail and dangerousness hearings in Suffolk County Superior Court. Yeah. So I am, uh, I am on the one hand super excited about it because what she said, what the district attorney said to the media, 
plays out in the data exactly. Essentially, less than 10% of these uh-huh. defendants, all of whom are accused of, of serious felonies, yeah. less than 10% of them were ever subjected to a dangerous affair. Huh. And yet, over 60% of them never made bail. Yeah. Never made bail because bail was too high. Yeah. Bail up to like two and a half million dollars. And mind you, uh, 75% of them were appointed public defenders. Mm-hmm. So they obviously could not afford a lawyer, let alone. A two and a half million dollar bail, or yeah. I guess two hundred fifty thousand dollars up front. Is there not yeah. the option to to hold people without bail in Suffolk County? Is my first uh, obvious question. In, so yes, yes, the judge can deny bail altogether. Okay. But again, the the law says that uh, the judge should deny bail if they believe that there is nothing that would prevent the defendant from failing to appear. Right. They all should only be used to ensure that the defendant appears for trial. Right. And anything else should be a dangerous mishap. Okay. And so the the DA is just flat out circumventing the law. Yeah. <laughs> to suit her yeah. own her own and apparently lack of work ethic, I guess. Well, apparently it's just a repeating, just system-wide issue. Yeah. And on the one hand, it excites me that to be able to see it in the data. Uh-huh. Because these things are so hard to prove. Yeah. And it helps when she says the quiet part out loud. <laughs> right. 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 It, it just sort of boggles my mind that you, you could do that. We don't ask for dangerousness hearings because they're too much work. They're too resource intensive. What? But but you're supposed to. That's the law. Yeah, and shouldn't you also be like more thoughtful about how you use the resources available at your office? And it's well, and it's not like you're in some like rinky dink <laughs> middle of nowhere place. Either, right? Right, they have plenty of resources. This is not a resource shy environment. <laughs> that's that's baffling to me. <laughs> like we are not a we are not a backwoods legal system where, yeah. uh, where people don't have any money and, and there's one prosecutor dealing with a million cases. I would be curious about like what she campaigned on, like to come at it from the political side of it. I really, I really wonder what what that looked like. She campaigned on uh, on criminal justice reform and justice for uh, minority communities. And, and so then we're going to turn around and badmouth the bail fund and yes. <laughs> and admit out loud that we're trying to circumvent it. Yeah. So it's like that. That. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but she sounds like part of this new generation of allegedly progressive prosecutors that aren't really progressive prosecutors because that's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. 
and is just using a lot of like reform buzzword language to to try to signal to certain parts of the county to elect her without any intention of actually doing it. And look, I think I think what we've got is prosecutors who find it really easy to be progressive uh, on misdemeanors and uh, minor drug crimes and, yeah. and those things we've sort of reached consensus on. Right? I think it's really hard to be a conservative prosecutor on those topics. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to these much more serious, much more complicated cases, mm-hmm. and that's where I live in Congress, I don't think we've got any progressive prosecutors. I don't think we've got progressive public support for that. No, not really. We sort of seem to have this was that idea that once someone does something violent or commits a serious felony, they are a horrible person who should ever be should forever be locked away. There is mm-hmm. no redemption. Yep. So I don't know that that this DA is any different than most other DAs or, or the public for that matter. Yeah. I think we've got a lot more education to do. Yeah. Which then ties back into what we were just talking about and like the qu- what what actually is the quality of our education? <laughs> right. Right. And and how these it's actually tying right back to the issue of how these young guys uh, suddenly saw themselves as both having perhaps done this criminal thing and at the same at the same time resisting being called a sex offender. Yeah. Yeah. Only here it's more issues of like racism, I would expect. Racism and classism. How do you how do you tell people that you are uh a champion of the people and wanting to fight to make your community a safer place when there are elements of that community that you wouldn't be caught dead with. Right. That that too is a complicated issue. What we consider to be part of our community is is a question. Yeah. Yeah. And how do they I don't know, I I mean I think about that I think about this stuff all the time. But just like how how people can occupy the same space but still live in two different worlds is so interesting mm-hmm. and depressing. <laughs> but it very, is really depressing. Very it interesting. Is so depressing. Yeah, I mean, I, I I I didn't watch Joe Biden's speech live last night. I watched it afterwards. But that was that was one of the things I thought about later was like that issue, <laughs> you know. No. Um. But anyway, let's not dwell on that because I can tell we're both getting <laughs> depressed thinking about it. So let's not. And this, I should also say, this episode isn't coming out probably until sub- late September. So uh, hopefully, the future us's are much happier with the state of the <laughs> presidential election um, as we go into October um, than we may be right now. Uh, so, can we talk about your teaching? 
for a little bit? Yeah, totally. Um, so you're teaching you're teaching forensic psych, um, and mostly grad students, right? Yeah. So, what's that like? How's that going? Um, I always think it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. They have the most far-fetched ideas about what being in forensic psych actually means. Okay. Uh, so please enlighten me, because I have I have had so many undergraduates say that they want to go into forensic psych. I was trained as a social psychologist, a sociological social psychologist, so barely even have the right to call myself a psychologist, I guess. Um, and so I'll tell them, you know, we have, we have one class. Our psych department has a forensic psych class, but I can tell you you're not going to get a job as a forensic psychologist, so it's time to get a new career plan <laughs> for yourselves. So what, what is forensic psychology? <laughs> like, what, what would you have me tell, tell my students about this? Well, so there are real people who do real forensic psychology, right? Mm-hmm. They do exist. They're out there. Um, most of them are licensed clinical psychologists who have specialty forensic training, mm-hmm. uh, who evaluate defendants, for example, for criminal responsibility or for competency stand trial. Okay. Those are, those are some of the most common ones. Some folks work in mitigation, uh, particularly in capital sentencing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so death penalty states employ quite a few uh, forensic psychologists whose job it is to help avoid a death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, some forensic psychologists work in, in state institutions. Mm-hmm or in prisons where they provide some evaluation and some treatment to prisoners or to uh, NGRI So I have a dumb question. So how is that different from just ordinary clinical psychological work? Like I, I guess I don't um, I guess I don't understand what the forensic part is. Uh, well so the forensic part really means that you've had specialized training in the instruments Mm-hmm. Uh, that are used to evaluate people in those particularly unique circumstances. There are also unique ethical responsibilities that you should know about and train in. Okay. So typically, they're not that different. That's that's the cool part, right? If you have a clinical PhD and a clinical license or a PsyD and a license, those are the typical facts. Uh, you could get the specialty training to get forensic board certification. Sort of like being a doctor and then getting trained in a particular form of surgery. If you are a general surgeon and mm-hmm. then you become a brain surgeon. Yep. Okay. There are paths. A lot of people start along those paths in uh, in their graduate school years. So they take uh, their pre-licensed internships in forensic settings and things like that. Okay. But that's all that is, right? Okay. That's the entire distinction. So you're, you're teaching folks uh, about 
doing psychological work with really specialized populations. Yeah. And understanding the law as part of what yeah. you do. Which a lot of clinicians don't necessarily have to have as much of an understanding of. Yeah. Because they're not dealing with that population, so why right. why would they? Huh. Right. Whereas students come to class, graduate students, this is the sad part, uh, they come to class and they tell me, I want to be a profile. <laughs> and then I bang my head against the wall and say, there's no such thing. Let's talk about a different career path. Yeah. So that, that was the next thing I was going to say. So, like, there's not a lot of uh, blacklight training <laughs> in what you're doing. <laughs> not, no. Nobody's going to no. go in with, like, a, a little, uh, one of those little brushes that you see, like, archeo- or paleontologists might have or archaeologists might have to go in and collect minute scraps of evidence. <laughs> because no, we're not forensic scientists. <laughs> Uh, so what you don't do, you, do that nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So it's mostly it's uh, a lot of students go in convinced that they want to do investigative work. Yeah. Or do quote unquote profiling, and then I have to crush their dreams. Yep. Uh some students go in thinking that they want to sort of participate in a fight for justice uh, and they don't realize that working as experts uh, with expert opinion and the battle of the experts in the courtroom uh, you can't really do the whole fight for justice yeah yeah. It doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, you should it's go to law school. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and lawyers actually have a much better attitude about the fight for justice. I work with lawyers every day. One of the mm-hmm. things that I teach students about is the reality of working with lawyers, which forensic psychologists do a lot. Yeah. Wait, you said that lawyers have a better attitude. Better attitude compared to who? Compared to my incoming forensic psychology students. So they want to, they want to fight for justice, but they're, they're what? They have a, they're cynical about it, or. So I don't think I don't think they typically want to fight for justice. I don't think they would frame that in that. I got you. They want to lock up bad guys. Uh, well, some of them, some of them want to. Some of them really believe they want to make the community safer. Mm-hmm. Right, that's on one side, and that's fine. If you want to make the community safer, if you want to fight for the rights of victims, totally fine. I respect that. Uh, the other side will tell you that they're fighting for human and individual rights. Typically on the defender side. Okay. Uh, they'll say the system isn't fair. Yeah. And unless and unless we balance it, uh, there is no justice. Yeah. Okay. But uh, but there 
they rarely see themselves as crusaders. They're yeah. client advocates, which I like. It's it's more realistic than trying to bring justice to the world. Okay. All right. But still, maybe not necessarily something that they could do with a forensic psych background. Well, they could they could do some of that, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, for example, there's there are students who graduate and get their PhDs ultimately, and uh, and end up going to work in a prison. Mm-hmm. You know what? Prisoners really need good care. Yeah. Part of the fight for justice can be providing really good care to people who don't have access to any options. You are their option. Mm-hmm. Be good at it. Right. So, yeah. I, I don't think that it's it's that far-fetched to bring some more equity, some more justice, but not in the not in the CSI type of way. Yeah. So how do you uh, how do you how do you deal with them once once that bubble is burst? Like, what does that look like? Because I mean, I I do it all the time at the undergraduate level. I've never had to do that with grad students before. It's easier to do it with undergrads. Yeah. With undergrads, they know that they don't know a lot of the time. Yeah. And they'll say, "What do you mean?" But I saw on TV. How is that not a real job? Yeah. And that's that's fine. And you talk to them and you sort of help them figure out what the real options are. And hopefully with a little bit of experience and a little bit of exposure to the field, they figure out a real path. Uh, one of the challenges with bad students is that particularly these are master's students, so they've They've invested some money into this already. They've invested some time into this already. Uh, And when they realize that the goal they had imagined is not a real goal, or that in order to pursue a similar goal, they might have to go a totally different direction, that can be pretty difficult. And I, I find myself having to spend quite a lot of time one-on-one with these students, really talking through, okay, so what are the real uh, Where do you go from? Yeah. I'm, I wonder, how do, they, how do they even get to that point? Like, what happens to them, or I guess doesn't happen to them, during their undergraduate experience where a previous advisor or professor hasn't, hasn't told them, like, this is not viable for your future? Honestly, I think we, as a collective for college professors, suck a lot of time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying that lightly. I have all the empathy in the world in the sense of, look, there are a ton of pressures, uh, but here's what happens. You get somebody who went straight from their bachelor's degree into maybe a master's, but maybe a, straight into a PhD. Uh, they graduate, 
they are among the lucky few and they get a tenure track job. Mm-hmm. They don't know what careers in the world look like because they've never had one. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you supposed to know what jobs are real jobs if you've never had one? You've never worked in this field. And that's even worse when you've got a faculty member who's who's been through all of that and has stayed in the same university setting during, during research that doesn't involve uh, community involvement doesn't involve any government agency involvement. How are they going to know? Mm-hmm. So they can advise those students. Uh, when those students go to them for advice, they don't get much. Sometimes they get bad advice. Yeah. Yeah. I think. We see on Twitter how that happens to PhD students. So why not to undergraduates, of whom there's a lot more? Oh, I know. There's been, I don't know what, like something in the water lately. I've just, I've seen so much bad, so many bad advice threads for mm-hmm. this this incoming PhD cohort, and I've I've largely stayed out of it, um, for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah like bad ideas um yeah like i i tend to think about it i think in a similar way um not as much about like the lack of job experience but more like the realities of a slowly sinking ship (laughs) and uh i want i want people to come to my school and if i have you know 15 freshmen who all say that they want to if I come here, can I be a forensic psychologist and go off and be a profiler? I'm when I might say yes. Like they could say, and if I go here, can I go off and be a unicorn? And like absolutely, you can. You can with our degree and a little bit of hard work and luck, you can be a unicorn. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how it goes. And like without any care about like the ramifications that you're you're basically stealing these families' money um, and stringing these students along for four or five years. And then once they can't find that job, then it's their fault, not my fault, because I lied to them. Which is kind of gross. Which is very gross. Not even kind of. Very gross. It is, but I think it's also intertwined with the lack of knowledge about the workforce. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, we see all these uh, moves that institutions are making to competency-based education. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely love that move. Uh, and the reason I love that move is because it forces the institution to tie education to actual career outcomes. Mm-hmm. Like, you cannot teach students to build a skill unless you've connected that skill to what their career is going to be. Yeah. And that makes all of that so explicit, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. You're not saying you're going to get a bachelor's in gender studies mm-hmm. and not talking to students what they can do with a bachelor's in gender studies. 
Yeah. You have to prepare them for a specific job market and specific career set. And then they can say, wait a minute, I don't really want to do that job. That yeah. doesn't sound like fun at all. <laughs> yeah. I think I want to be a profiler. And then they go through the catalog and they realize, oh, wait, there is no degree that prepares me for that. I wonder why. Yeah. It's, it's, it's honestly surprising. And I'm, I'm sure as soon as I say this, I'll think of a place that does it. But it, I'm surprised that there, there haven't been criminology or, or psych or CJ programs that have been just so blatantly uh, greedy to be like, here's our whole profiling program. Come major in profiling. And just rake in millions of dollars in tuition and unleash you know, all these profiling degrees into the world that are absolutely worthless. <laughs> I don't think that is quite there yet. I haven't seen one of those yeah. yet. But I can tell you that uh, as part of my graduate education at the University of Massachusetts, Lowell, I had a course in criminal profiling. Really? Yeah. <laughs> why? Where I learned that it doesn't exist. Uh, uh, that's why. <laughs> That's why they put that class together to tra- as like a way to filter out the 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 would be TV profilers. <laughs> well, I don't know because it doesn't sound like everybody who was in that class uh, changed their minds. I took the class because I was curious about the science. Yeah, uh, but there were people who who got the science, got the, this doesn't really exist, and said, but wait, there is one place in the world that does this. I will go there. How? <laughs> How? I mean, there's there's bound to be somebody, right? Well, yeah, but the FBI is only going to hire so many people. The FBI doesn't need 20,000 22-year-old profiling experts. Right, not to mention that's not how the FBI hires profilers. Yeah. That, that's just not how that works. You you apply, you go be an agent, and then maybe, maybe someday. Yeah. Or maybe not, maybe never. Yeah, and, and probably never. Right, <laughs> because they probably need, like, four. Yeah. And those four will work there until they die. <laughs> Job. Yeah. Waiting yeah. Yeah. Four quadrants of the U.S. and whoever gets the Southwest covers Hawaii, and whoever gets the Northwest right. covers Alaska, and that's it. <laughs> and you lead a pretty copacetic life, I imagine. Yeah. Because you really liked being a special agent. I mean, I can see some folks oh, yeah. really enjoying that. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, my favorite story about this was I, I worked in open house a couple of years ago and I had a student come up to me to, to learn more about the criminology major and he said that uh, he wanted to be an FBI special agent. Um, and I said, okay, well, um, if you want to do that, you should probably double major in biology and you should probably plan to go and do a PhD in like genetics because so much of the work now involves genealogy 
Um, and so the crim side, we can we can teach you about families and like give you the tools to investigate and build like family trees and, and navigate that part of it. And the genetic side will will help you learn how to like do genetic matching and, and understand more about DNA. And I could as I'm telling him this and like explaining like these big cases that have, have happened recently, like the Golden State Killer and um, the the Bear Brook murders. Um, that involved like really extensive genetic genealogy um, to crack to blow those cases open. I could see the color <laughs> draining out of his face. <laughs> like, sorry, man, it's not it's not high speed car chases and gunfights. You're not gonna <laughs> you're, you're you're in the wrong place. Like, honestly, just join the police academy if 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 you want some kind of adventurous life and even that's not going to be adventurous because you're mostly going to be doing paperwork paperwork or, or trolling the and and collecting fines and fees right right so well I've taken up a lot of your time <laughs> thank you so much for humoring me uh, and this I'm so excited to start brainstorming choose your own adventure stuff <laughs> well you're Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So, we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so, if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.